Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, Dr. Robert Smith and I are here again to introduce you today to a fabulous sermon from the History of Preaching by Dr. Sandy Ray. Sandy Ray was for many years the pastor of the Cornerstone Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York. He was a leader in his denomination, serving as president of the Empire State National Baptist Convention Incorporated USA as a vice president of the national denomination. He was a preacher's preacher a remarkable master of metaphor, a person who was able to take the scriptures in his hand and crumble it just like cornbread. He was a fabulous preacher. He passed away in 1979, went home to be with the Lord, but his legacy still remains. A number of his sermons were collected into a volume called Journey Through a Jungle. And we're so blessed to have this sermon recorded for us that we're going to listen to after Dr. Smith sets it up and tells us, What's coming with Dr. Sandy Ray? Dr. Sandy F. Ray is a preacher who, uh, according to what uh, Ray Stedman said, does not interpret the Bible as being 20 centuries old, but rather being one century old, repeated for 20 centuries. So he is not saying anything uh, new, but he's saying it in fresh new ways. This sermon will bring uh, together a three-sided conversation between John the Baptist and his uniqueness, Christ and his uniqueness, and the uniqueness of the preacher of the gospel. And this conversation is uh, taking place concomitantly as well as simultaneously. Uh, Here, Sandy Ray, a a master of metaphors, Dr. George has already talked about, uh, is also one who is a master of alliteration. You should look for his earthy, mundane illustrations. He really is preaching to preachers, and uh, you can see the root work in his preaching, in, in that he is confronting ministers about prosperity theology, even before that term became popular, success syndrome. Uh, He says that John the Baptist is one who did not have uh, theological education. He didn't wear clerical garments. Um, He didn't eat um, regular food. He ate locusts and wild honey and wore clothes that were of a real rude fashion, camel's hair. Uh, Here was an individual who was not elected uh, to any office, etc., and yet Jesus paid him the highest compliment in saying that of all the persons that have been born, John the Baptist was the greatest. So he is challenging the minister to understand that God can use a nobody, call him from nowhere, to tell everybody about somebody who can save anyone. Uh, This is a very therapeutic message in that it informs uh, the mind and inspires the heart. He closes his sermon uh, in many instances by reciting a hymn. And in this setting, you will hear the ministers rise up as he moves toward a crescendo in climaxing, bringing exegesis and experience together uh, in the worship of our God. Years ago, I had Dr. Gardner Taylor as a teacher of preaching, and we all thought Gardner Taylor was the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. But he would remind us that in his opinion, Dr. Sandy Ray was without peer. So now we have the real treat of listening together to this wonderful message by the late Dr. Sandy F. Ray, a voice 
in the wilderness. Dr. Jackson, Dr. Curry, and other guests on the platform, members of the faculty and students, and distinguished ministers and laymen, brothers and sisters. I'm very thrilled and happy to join in this fellowship and certainly to participate in this program, in this institute, this year. To me, there's something extremely prophetic about this institute. I have sort of checked over the participants and the present present and the cross-section of leaders who have come here to participate in this program. And I just remembered across the country and across the nation and across the conventions a number of very, very distinguished leaders, some of whom, of course, I will not call their name. I just thought of men like John Williams and Chambers and Haney and Price and Dudley and Clark and Shaw and Campbell and Guy and many others across and Jones and many others from all across this nation who are participating in this institute. And it occurs to me that circumstances of our black church institution, church-related institution, may lift us to new challenges and to new heights when we think of what is happening to black schools, black church-related schools, around the nation. I think some of us know that some of the schools and most of the institutions started with preachers and church leaders many years ago. But they're switching now and uh, putting the church-related inst uh, institutions and church-related activities aside and emphasizing other areas of education. And while we're thinking of black theology and black awareness and, and black culture and black caucuses, in fact, all of our denominations now have black caucuses, it may well be that uh, this institution may shake us into a sense of pride for the founders of our black institutions. Yes. And it may be that our coming together as we are across our conventional lines may make us realize that uh, there are things which we have which are more important than an office in terms of education. We have several uh, who are doing something in evangelism across the conventional lines. It may be that we might get interested in education of, in black institutions. It may be we may get interested in evangelism. It may be we get interested in missions. And we might revert from some of our conventional structures and get back 
to what the purpose of the church was. And we might get back to Christian education, Dr. Williams. We may get back to evangelism, and you're very much interested in that. And we might get back to real missions. And if we could possibly, and this won't happen in my lifetime, if we could get less concerned about the official families of our convention and be more interested in education for black people and missions and evangelism, it may be something may happen and it may be uh, that this institution with the kind of thing it's doing and bringing to this campus the caliber of men across all of our conventional lines, it may be saying something to us. And it may be the testimony of this institute might be saying something to black Baptists all around this nation. I don't know where enough of us will hear the voice or not, but I think it is saying something. I think, I think it is testifying I think it is making a very efficient, efficient, and to me, a very eloquent testimony of some of the things that we ought to be doing as black Baptists around this country. Now, there are a whole lot of, a lot of our people, particularly among our young people, who have just decided to be black. <laughs> Well, I've gone just a few miles, maybe a hundred miles from here, on a plantation, and I found out very early that I was black, <laughs> so that I don't have any problem of trying to convince anybody <laughs> that I'm black. <laughs> And if I had not, if I had not been born in Texas, I suspect that I wouldn't have any problem convincing anybody that I'm black. But what I'm saying is, I think that the testimony of this institute might be saying something to all of us. I want to talk to us today about the voice in the wilderness. It is from the third chapter of St. John, and you know the story. I shall not read that scripture. But John the Baptist was a very unique character. He flashed upon the scene at a rather peculiar time in history, and the powerful Roman Empire dominated the more major portion of the world, including Palestine. Hebrew prophecy was silent, and God did not have a clear voice, even in the temple. And this weird wilderness preacher emerged on the scene. John showed peculiar trends early in his life. His priestly father was concerned about his strange 
behavior early in his life. He had no real interest in his father's parish. The traditional worship did not appeal to him. His father's, his father sensed the trend of his son, and I think he must have said that I had hoped that he would be my successor, but he doesn't like the church. He resents church regalia. He refused to be an altar boy. And my clergy attire seems to depress him. He lacks unconventional attire. He doesn't like kosher food. He goes out in the wilderness and eats locusts and wild honey. He's antisocial. He's unorthodox. I can't communicate with him anymore. He has a dangerously radical trend. If he wants to be a priest, I could arrange for his credentials because I'm in with the machine. He can enjoy the cozy comforts of the manse. But the father must have said to his mother, we're losing our son. But the disturbing fact was that the prophetic son was losing his father. His father was bound and shackled in a conservative, decaying, deteriorating religious system. And the father had really gotten lost. And many older people in our society today are greatly distressed about losing young people. But we might well give some concern about prophetic, dedicated, progressive young people losing us. Many bewildered, frustrated parents today have gotten lost from their children rather than the children losing them. Now John's father could not interpret the theology of the wilderness. And so he thought his son was mad. He thought his son was crazy. He thought his son had lost his mind. And there are many preachers, young preachers around our world today who don't understand the wilderness theology. I'm doing something over at Union Theological Seminary. I did something up in Boston recently. And I've talked to another number of young preachers who are very distressed about preaching, pastoring, because they don't have any sense of wilderness theology. And so they are leaving the church and going into industry and going into government and going where they can get big jobs and what they call security because they don't want to risk their lives with the theology of the wilderness. John was a voice crying in the wilderness and the wilderness was crying for a voice. 
the nation, the nation was expecting a voice, but not from the wilderness. They expected a voice from the well-established system. They expected a voice from the temple leadership. But this strange, weird voice comes from an unexpected source from the wilderness. Someone inquired of his credentials, his authority. And John said, I have no credentials. I have no government seal. I have no affiliations with the empire. I have no military rank. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I am announcing a new order. And there comes one after me mightier than I. Now the rumor, the rumor of a revolution was terribly disturbing to the staid religious leaders. The temple was fabulously equipped and had beautiful rituals and formalities. But the rumor of a revolution gave them a sense of insecurity. They knew that a revolution was overdue. And whenever there are oppressors, they are expecting insurrection. And wherever people are taking advantage of other people, they are expecting a revolution. And notwithstanding the apparent security of the people in the temple, they were disturbed about the rumor of a revolution. And so this weird wilderness voice was more thrilling and exciting than the formal harpists and the priestly tones in the temple. And this voice sounded a note of hope for the underprivileged and for the disinherited. It was an attractive voice. It was a voice that attracted the masses of people. And the old voices were dull and lifeless. But this new voice had a new ring. And this new voice gave a sound and tone of hope for the masses who were oppressed. They first attempted to ignore John. They said he was regarded as a radical, fanatic, brain-damaged, irresponsible character. Maybe some frustrated, disappointed, mad, bitter young man who was angry with the establishment. But his voice was so thrilling, it was pulling the masses away from the temple to the rugged banks of the Jordan. And they must have discussed John. They must have talked in guarded tones about him. They must have said, uh, maybe he won't make it. He's just an overnight prophet. He's just one of these uh, fanatics. His voice will soon be heard. Why don't we just let him alone and ignore him? But somebody said, we can't do this. The people are going to hear him. We've got to deal with it. We've got to hand him. Although he's unconventional, he is not in the system, 
He doesn't have any license to preach. But, but the people are going out to him. He's not a formal, organized, recognized preacher, but the people are going out to him. So we've got to get to him some one way or another because uh, uh, we've, got to, we've got to arrest him, we've got to deal with him, we've got to find some way to pull the people away from him. And brethren, I think uh, maybe some of you have had experience of people who said this man ain't got nothing, he ain't, ain't nothing to him, but the people <laughs> are going to him. And sometimes we have people who say, and there are a lot of people who will say, oh, he can't preach. But you go to this church. Now, you may not think he can preach, but there are a whole lot of people that think he can. <laughs> and somebody said, uh, John doesn't wear any robes, and he doesn't look like a preacher. He doesn't have any regalia. He doesn't have any candles. He didn't have any kind of formality that could attract anybody, but 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 he got a strange penetrating voice, and and the people like and and you can't you can't ignore people you can't ignore ignore leaders whether they are what you call formal leaders or not if the people. Like. And so John said, uh, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is strange language, for we are the official custodians of the kingdom of God. Our ritual, our robes, our doctrine, our dogma, our traditions, our customs justify our claims as recognized spokesman for the kingdom of God, and this man claims that the kingdom of God is in reach. But John said, uh, you, uh, you are misguided. You are proud, arrogant, haughty, exploiters of the poor. You're hypocrites, really. You're whited sepulchers. Really, you are phonies. And I've come to tell the whole truth. You need repentance. You're leading a wavered, wretched, wicked system. You need to change your direction. You need to change your motives. You need to change your manners, your attitude, and your spirit. You need to rearrange your priorities and your principles and your purposes, you in the, you're going in the wrong direction. Now, if you're so secure, if you're so sure that you are the custodians of the kingdom of God, why are you so excited about my preaching? 
If you're so sure that you're going to have the last word on what God has to say, why are you bothering about me? But John found them soothing their consciences in a false security. They were blind to the danger that threatened them, and he could feel the sense of their insecurity. And brethren, if we feel that we're secure, we don't have to bother about what somebody else is doing. If we feel that we're on the right track, you don't have to bother about what somebody is saying down by the banks of the Jordan. He said the axe is laid at the root of the tree. The axe, not a pruning hook, not fertilizer, but the axe is laid at the root of the tree. The Roman power that is destined to cut down the Jewish state is close at hand. The tree is still standing. A great tree with massive trunk and spreading branches. Its imposing presence suggests strength and security, but it is bearing no good fruit. The axe is unseen, but it is aligned at the most vital area of the tree's existence, the root of the tree. Jesus had some experience with a tree in his lifetime. Remember the fig tree. Remember Jesus had been up to the temple and had looked in the temple right after the triumphant entry. And when he looked in, he got so distressed and disturbed about what he saw. He didn't say anything about it that day. He went on out to Bethany, remember, and stayed overnight. And then the next morning, he came back and he probably didn't eat. He was distressed all night. And on his way back, he saw this beautiful fig tree. And he said, I think I'll stop by and leave, have some figs. And when he got there, he found that the tree had beautiful leaves, but no fruit. And I think Jesus was not so much distressed about that tree as he was about a church that he had seen yesterday. <laughs> and if you, if you read that, Jesus talks to the tree. He personalizes the tree. And he said, now, uh, you, you appear to have some on you. From the distance, you look fruity. <laughs> But when I got close to you, I found there was nothing that believed. But he was talking to a church. He was talking to the church that he looked at yesterday. With all of its regalia, with all of its canon, with all of its beauty, with all of the robes of priests. And he saw that tree, but he saw also that there was nothing on it that they had left really the fruit and had gone out in the outer courts and they were more concerned about what was going on in the outer courts selling the doves and heifers and the rest of that and Jesus said that the 
uh, that the the lights have gone out and on the altar there was no fire because they have neglected the fire on the altar to be concerned about what's going on in the outer courts in terms of heifers and doves and the rest of it. And he said, now, uh, I'm going to curse you. I'm not going to leave, I'm not going to cut you down, but I'm going to let you stand here as a monument to faith. I'm going to let you stand here with leaves, but as long as people come along, they'll find nothing on you. That's truth. The place where lies suggests utter destruction. The cold gleam of steel at the root of the tree can bring the proud tree crushing to the ground. The axe is a constant threat to pride and holiness and arrogance and hypocrisy and evil. And no one can escape from the keen blows of the axe of God's judgment. The axe is lying at the root of our affluent culture at this moment. It has green, beautiful, secure appearance, but a dangerous blade is looking at its roots. The hope of our culture is repentance. We must see our sins sorrowfully and change our direction. We have hope, however, for God's mercy is in the midst of his judgment. The kingdom of heaven is in reach. The mighty one is in the wings. The prince, the king's son, waits in the wings. He has a final authentic message from the father. I'm not that light. But I've come to bear witness of that life. Don't bother about who I am. I'm not important. I'm just a forerunner. But there's one coming after me who is mightier than I You know, I like that transfiguration scene. Peter, James, and John on the mountain with our Lord. And while they were there, Peter got so excited Shall he just exclaimed as he always did, Lord, it's so good to be here. And Jesus said to him, indeed, it is good to be here, Peter, but it's not good to stay here. <laughs> you've seen historic figures flash before your eyes and you felt the glorified climate on the mountain, but it's not good to stay here. Because you have not heard the authentic voice of the Almighty, and that's the reason for your being here. You came here with divided loyalty. You came here concerned about Moses and Elias and the Lord. And your loyalties were divided. And I brought you up here so that I'm going to eliminate Moses and Elias now for a moment. And then When you come back, they'll be gone. Your ancient loyalties will be lost. And I'll be standing here alone. And then you will hear 
what God wanted to say to you. Moses was my servant. Elijah was my seal. But Jesus is my son. Hear him. He has the final word. He has the blueprint for my spiritual empire. Don't bother about what Moses said. Don't bother about what Elias said. But hear Jesus and hear him at all levels of your life. And whenever you want a message that's going to be authentic and real, hear Jesus. Whenever you want to know what God has to say to the universe, hear Jesus. Whenever you want to know the works and will of God, hear Jesus. John said, I have played my role. I have played the path through rivers. I have played the role of the supporting cats. But the star is appearing. The feature act is coming on. All pretenders must clear the stage and watch the master perform. I was a wilderness preacher and the world was in a wilderness. I was a jungle prophet because the world was in a jungle. But I've played my role, I've done my task. And now I'm going to stand back and let the master come on the scene. I'm not that light. But I'm honored to have been the forerunner. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. And Jesus paid John a rather high tribute. Jesus said when they were criticizing John, he said, John is the greatest. You can talk about him. He might not have been a recognized, licensed preacher, but he was the greatest. I think John got a little confused once about Jesus. He, he, was, he was in jail and Jesus was preaching in the neighborhood. And John was distressed that as much as he'd done for Jesus, and someone said they were related even, and uh, Jesus was preaching right in the neighborhood, and John was in jail. And Jesus didn't even get a lawyer to go and see if he could get him out. And John got so distressed about it, he said, surely that must not be Jesus. And uh, he said, look, I want a couple of you fellas to go over there where he's preaching. <laughs> and I said, look, uh, you, you know, John's in jail, you know. And uh, he's just a, just a little ways away from him. And he's wondering why you don't come over and see about <laughs> And Jesus just kept on preaching. And he said, uh, I know. He said, uh, don't give John any message from me. You just look at what I'm doing. And you go back and tell John what I'm doing. And if he's not impressed about what I'm doing, 
I don't have any other message. I know he's in jail. And I know that it would take a miracle to get him out, and I could do it. But I don't have any miracle scheduled for this incident. And I believe we've got to have either here a miracle or a martyr. And God has not scheduled a miracle. So we'll just have to have a martyr. Tell John what I'm doing. And if he is not happy, I'm sorry. I'm persuaded that the wilderness and jungle of our turbulent society are crying for a voice. And most of our voices which we hear are confusing and frustrating. The voice of the state, the voice of industry, the voice of the sophisticated, the voice of the poor, the voice of criminals, the voice of youth, the voice of labor, the voice even of the church. All of these voices are not sound voices. We need a great, thrilling, convincing voice. For all of these voices are disconcerting and oppressive. I've heard the voices 